We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 if you're joining us for the first time. We're glad you're here. This is uh, Waypoint Christian Church, and we're a fairly new church, just over a year. Um, and we have been journeying through the book of Acts very intentionally as the book of Acts demonstrates the first church and everything they did, everything they experienced, everything they had to overcome, and how they did that. And so I felt it prudent for us to, uh, as a brand new church, examine the same thing. And it's been a joy. We're going to finish chapter 14 and, and make our way slightly into chapter 15. But this is, as you can see on the title there, part one of two messages. There comes a point, and this has been demonstrated true, in every age of the church, there's a defining moment for the church. Acts chapter 15 is going to record for us what's known as the Jerusalem Conference. And it's, it's an incredibly important passage because it was the first time the church had to really settle the issue of law and grace. And uh, it became a defining moment for the identity of the gospel and the church as it moved forward. And as I said, there have been throughout the generations since defining moments for the church. We're going to consider this morning really a historical approach um, and consideration of some of those things to prepare us for Acts chapter 15. And so it might be a little bit different than what you're accustomed to get for, uh, from me. I like to preach exegetically through Scripture, meaning I like to go um, pretty much verse by verse and cover that. We're going to cover that, but take a break and do somewhat of a, of a topical study this morning. But I think it's prudent. I have, I have had the conviction for a long time. Um, I think a, a defining moment for the church is, is either here or going to be here in our generation. Um, and one of the aspects that will be a part of that, my conviction is, is that the church needs to wake up from its apathy and learn. And so I think doing a historical study of the church before us is one way I can help us at Waypoint um, toward that end. So I'm not, uh, not sad about it. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I don't know why those aren't coming up. There we go. All right. This is going to be the general outline. Pretty easy. This is, might be the most simple outline I've ever had. Two, two main points. God opens the door of faith to the Gentiles. This is really the first missionary conference of the church. That will cover chapter 14, 26 to 28, the end of the chapter. Second point turns around on that. Even though it has been demonstrated by Paul and Barnabas, God opened the door of fate to the Gentiles. Nonetheless, some men were trying to close that door. Um, and that will be verses 1 through 6 as well as next week, okay? Alright, great joy at great triumph. The first missionary conference. One pastor I like reading, Warren Wiersbe, spoke of a, a church officer of all people in his church. One time told him after a service, after he had had some missionaries come and share, this church officer told him, I don't care how much money you want for missions. I'll give it. But just don't make me listen to missionaries speak. Now, if a church officer ever says that to me, I'll probably ask him to leave. <laughs> Bo and Dwayne. <laughs> if I ever say that, I need to step down. What a sad heart toward missions. But unfortunately, I think what that man really captured is, is an unspoken sentiment that you do find in the church at large. It's easier to give money than to be a missionary yourself and to see yourself as a missionary where you're at. This is one of the things, in my opinion, that the church today must turn around. And Waypoint, we must turn from. Um, and so we're going to read, let's read Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 24, and see what Paul and Barnabas communicate. So if you remember from last week, after they had gone to Derby and preached the gospel, they very intentionally visited Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, three major cities where many disciples had been made at the preaching of the gospel, but three cities which persecuted Paul and Barnabas. 
and they had to flee. They returned to those cities in order to strengthen the disciples that had been made so that they might continue in the faith. That's what we looked at last week. And as they're continuing to make their way back to Antioch in Syria, where, the, where they'd been sent out from, they still visited some more cities on their way. They passed through, the scripture says in verse 24, Pisidia, and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So we know geographically where these cities are. They're important cities, but Luke doesn't give us any detail really of what happened there. All we know is that on their way back, they didn't simply make a beeline back to Antioch. Every place they visited on their journey back, they made sure to preach the gospel. That point's sufficient for us, really. I'm not going to settle on it. They, they, they didn't ignore where they were in their surroundings. Wherever they ended up, they preached the gospel. We don't know exactly what happened in those cities. We can assume God made many disciples. That's been the pattern. But they saw fit to keep going back to Antioch where, Luke says, they've been commended to the grace of God for that work, for the first missionary journey, beginning in chapter 13. And in verse 27 it says this, When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. As I said, this was really the first missionary conference of the early church. It was an important uh, aspect that the church who sent them should also be the church who shares in the blessings of missions. That should be an encouragement to anybody who sends out missionaries. Is you want to share in that fruit. Paul told, uh, I can't remember if it was the Corinthian church or another church, he said, hey, I am your spiritual father in the faith. Do I not have some right to the fruit you're bearing? There's joy when you are a part of missions and making disciples, leading people to the faith. There's joy as a whole that God got to use us in that way. That's a passion. If you remember what our Lord said, I came to seek and save the lost, right? This was his passion. He said in John 4, um, I have food to eat that you don't know of. Right? It's not that I'm physically hungry. I'm hungry to do the will of God. And that was the work of redeeming sinners. Missions is the identity of the church. And Paul and Barnabas, as they got back to their home base, could not wait to gather everyone together and share with them what God had done. And he'd done a lot. Just go back to 13 and read through to where we're at now and consider everything God had done. They suffered. They bled. Paul thought he was dead when he was stoned. And through it all, many people came to faith in the Lord. Very important church conference. In fact, in 15.3, if you want to jump down there, as they're making their way up to Jerusalem for the conference, they shared everywhere they went. Verse 3 of chapter 15. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the believers. What's important here that I, I'm not going to focus on this point so much. But what's important here is that we see a very healthy sign in the church. That when Paul and Barnabas communicated what God had done in opening a door, there was joy present with the people. There's joy present with the people. That is always a sign of a healthy church. Joy, excitement, zeal for missions. It will always be present in a church who's walking with Christ. Without a doubt, that is the Lord's heart. But there's also something we've got to consider. Where there's great enthusiasm with missions, that enthusiasm will be absent in a church who's not being obedient as well. It will be absent. When there's a lack of zeal for missions, when there's a lack of enthusiasm, when there's a lack of drive or, or desire to go out and share the gospel personally and corporately, there's something wrong. We're quenching the, the desire of the Spirit. That is undoubtedly His expressed desire in the Scripture. I believe Waypoint can grow in this area. I'm going to challenge us. We want to start 
local outreach. We want to be a part of um, outreach beyond just our town and, and borders. And I want to see us, even if we've never done it before, say, Lord, I might be scared. Lord, I might be stretched and challenged, but I'm going to give myself to that work. Some of us have never done that, so we will hide behind the excuse, well, I'm not, I'm not gifted in that way. How do you know? You've never given yourself to do it. Maybe the Lord has gifted you, and you've not made yourself available yet to be used in that way. I want to see us at Waypoint challenged. I want to see us changed, and I want our zeal for outreach to be like we see here. Great joy. Even in the face of persecution, we can grow. There's an interesting observation I made. This is interesting, and I, I don't want to push this too much because I'll confess, I could be reading into the scripture here. So test this. If you find it um, disagreeable with both history or scripture, leave it alone. But there's an interesting observation. Um, if you remember, Paul started out not as a disciple, but as a persecutor. And it was at his hands that the church initially spread out from Jerusalem because of the persecution. They scattered all to the surrounding regions. But when they scattered, they didn't quit preaching the gospel. We are told in the scriptures, however, they only preached to the Jews. And it wasn't until Acts 11 that some men from Cyprus started preaching to the Gentiles also. So as they went, they, they only were preaching the gospel to the Jews. But they were preaching the gospel nonetheless. Paul gets saved. Um, some men preach the gospel in Antioch. Many disciples are made. Barnabas goes down there to check out the work. He sees, man, this is a great work. He goes and finds Paul, who was in Tarsus at the time, brings him down to Antioch and says, I need your help. And that set up, really, the base of the Gentile church in Antioch. And what's an interesting point to me is that Jerusalem fades out of the pages of Scripture at that point, historically. Antioch becomes the base church from where Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys are sent out. And so what you see is this. In 15, Paul and Barnabas have to go back up to Jerusalem to meet with the pillars, James and the other apostles who are primarily preaching to the Jews. And, and that church, you get this impression that they've ceased to become a missionary church. Where the church at Antioch is exploding with missions. The church at Jerusalem is bound up wrestling with legalism. And trying to settle that issue once for all. My observation is this, and I don't know if it's true or not. I haven't really studied the history. But I do know this point is true, that any church that's bound up with legalism ceases to be a missionary church. You throw burdens and hindrances in front of people to the gospel. That's exactly what we're going to consider now. That's what legalism does. It makes it impossible actually to come to faith. Because you have to hit this check mark and this check mark and this check mark before you can be saved. And any church that wrestles with legalism will not have much of an evangelistic zeal, if any. And that's somewhat of the impression I'm left with at the church at Jerusalem, not the church at Antioch. They are zealous for missions. And Paul and Barnabas were zealous to defend it. It's an interesting point to consider. But let's pick it up reading in chapter 15. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now I want to define a word here because it's easy to overread in the English. That word teaching, you get the impression that it's just kind of a teaching setting. It's actually a very strong word that indicates a very persuasive relationship. It's it's. In a discipleship, for, a discipleship relationship, there's the teacher and the disciple, the learner, right? And that disciple is one who submitted under the teacher. Why? Because that teacher, for whatever reason, good or bad, true or false, has some very persuasive things over their disciples. They're very persuasive. They have a, a grip or hold on the disciple as far as their influence. That's the word used here. So these men who had come into the body at Antioch were having some very persuasive moves on the brethren. 
It's not simply that someone came in and advocated something different or taught something different. No, there's some persuasion going on, and it was causing some disunity in the brothers. Specifically, we see the issue of circumcision. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed. That's also a neat word, the word welcomed is. Without hindrance, they were warmly embraced. Okay? So the, the apostles in Jerusalem didn't have hesitation welcoming, embracing Paul and Barnabas. Uh, it's important to note, okay? They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared, that Paul and Barnabas declared, all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. That's where we're going to stop this morning. We'll actually consider that specific issue next week. Um, could be the, the defining theological issue in, in the New Testament. Law versus grace. It's still a defining issue today in churches. So I'm going to devote my time next week on dealing with that. And what I want to do... I want to pull out some elements that we see in those first six verses and consider how they've been employed throughout history. This is important for us to consider. I, I can't remember which president said it. I think he was the president. He said this, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. That's true in the church. And what we have, church, as far as a heritage having been passed on to us is wealthy. It's robust. From this time in the early church until present, council after council after council has been drawn up to consider issues that come up for us to have to consider and debate. Now some of us may get a little squirmy when it comes to debating. May not be our personality. We don't like conflict, right? I unfortunately, it's not that I like conflict, but I don't shy away from debates. Um, and I'm asking God to give me grace in, in, to debate gently with people because I, I contend not to. So keep me accountable, please. But let's consider some history of the church making a stand. Obviously, I'm not going to go into the Old Testament, but you don't have to go far into the Old Testament to see the church, Israel then, making a stand. If you remember Moses, when he comes down from the uh, Mount Sinai after receiving the law, what was Israel doing? Worshipping the golden calf. Remember what Moses did? He threw the tablets down, broke them, ground it up, made them drink it, the calf. And then he drew a line in the sand. And he said, whoever's with the Lord, come over here. And the tribe of Levi came. That's why they're instituted as the, the priestly tribe. Because they showed zeal for the name of the Lord. It's one of the earliest conflicts. He drew a line. Over and over and over, though, you see this in the Old Testament. Showing zeal. For the Lord. All the apostles and leaders engaged in defending the faith. We're going to consider some of those specifically. And I do want to make known that the issues that they took up uh, to defend varied. This one is dealing with uh, circumcision and the law in general as a whole. Do you have to keep the law still to be saved? Huge question. We've got to settle it. Because we either will save the gospel or lose the gospel depending on how we answer it. Much is at stake. I began saying some of us get squirmy with debate, but there's times it must be done. And there's times the church, maybe at great cost to our name, to our reputation, to our standing in a city, we must nonetheless make a defining stance against something. Historically, churches who fail to make a stand against grievous error, sin, Cease to exist. 
the way of the Lord. And we're going to consider some of those examples. First of all, let's consider Jesus himself. If you remember in the Gospels, very often Jesus contended constantly with the Pharisees over religious hypocrisy and legalism. For instance, hypocrisy, Matthew 23, 23, and then verse 25, he said this. It's a scathing chapter. This is just a few of the verses. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others, he said. In verse 25, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Words that would get him crucified. But true words. He contended with legalism constantly. If you remember, in Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, there's just one encounter. The text reads this way again. Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, to them, that is the Pharisees, he asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent, again, being hypocritical. And he looked at them with anger. The scripture says, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Jesus always contended and highlighted and brought to light hypocrisy and legalism. Because what he was dealing with held those people in bondage. And they needed to be set free. He never backed down from a fight with those two issues. Never. And as I said, it cost him. It cost him big time. But what did he gain? The salvation of souls who would believe. And that's his inheritance, the scripture says. Jesus, the great author and perfecter of our faith. What about Paul? Well, you don't have to go far in Paul's writings. Paul would deal with many, many issues and teachings throughout his tenure. The most frequent and pressing was that of legalism versus grace. Let's consider some of the passages. For instance, Acts 15, I noted there, but turn to Galatians with me. There's several in the book of Galatians. And this is pertinent for our study because if you remember, um, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, the towns we just studied last week, that, those were the towns that made up the Galatian province. So the book of Galatians is speaking to these very churches whom he had just visited. In Galatians chapter 1, we read this last week, I'll read it again, verse 6 through 9. Paul would write back to these churches, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So note that word. It's not just a different teaching. This is a different gospel they're preaching. And it has no place with Christ or what Christ did. They're turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should, not, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. Go over to chapter 2. Verse 4 and 5 actually is pinpointing the debate Paul had in Antioch. We just read in 15.1 that some men came down from Judea to Antioch, the church there, and told the believers, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. And we're told in Acts 15 that Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them. Well, here's how Paul summarized that event in verse 4. He says, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus... So that they might bring us into slavery. Look at verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Are you not thankful for men who are willing to fight and not even for a moment 
submit to that yoke of slavery again and fight for the gospel for your sake so that you might continue in the freedom of Christ. That's what Paul and Barnabas did in Antioch. They drew the line and they were not backing down. These were false brothers trying to bring us back into bondage. And they fought. They recognized what was at stake. Go to chapter 5. Galatians 5.1. We sang about this in one of our songs this morning. He said, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What encouragement. And then in chapter 6, 11-15 and verse 17, Paul ends his letter again making this appeal. See with what large letters... I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but only a new creation. In verse 17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In Philippians 3.18, here's what Paul said, For many of whom I have often told you. Note that. Paul would often tell the church there are people who are enemies of the cross. He says, for many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul dealt with this constantly, as well as other issues. What about Peter? Peter battled false teachers and licentious doctrines, similar to the book of Jude. Jude being the half-brother of Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 2, after identifying the fact of false teachers, he then spends the entire chapter, chapter 2, describing their character the same way Jude does. But here's what, how Peter opens chapter 2. This is verses 1 through 3. He says this, But false teachers also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. Words we hardly use today. What about the Apostle John? John took his stand against Gnosticism, which has many forms. And continued strongly even into the 3rd century. And there's, here's, here's the definition of Gnosticism. It's... Uh, uh, redemption is through affirming the divine light, what they called illuminated knowledge that was inherent in you. Not through repentance of sin and faith in Christ's atoning death and resurrection. In other words, it was knowledge-based rather than faith and repentance. What did John say? In, uh, there's several verses there you can look up. Chapter 2, 18-23. Here's what he says in uh, chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is already here. What John is dealing with is called docetism, which means um, Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh, because everything of the flesh is evil. If Jesus was truly God and came in the flesh, he also would be evil, so he couldn't have come in the flesh. It's the denial of the humanity of Christ. Again, much at stake with that. And he says very clearly... Those who deny Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. The reality of a false teacher. What about James? Pillar of the church at Jerusalem, the half-brother of our Lord. James would warn the church of having a dead faith. Remember this passage in chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. Secos Paul's warning to Ephesus. Where Paul said, be on guard against empty professions. For those who live in this way do not have the Lord. 
James would say the same thing in other words. If all you say is, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and don't give the poor what they need, what good is that faith? It's, it's nothing. Faith without works is dead. You can find those passages in James 2 and Ephesians 5. What about Jude, the other half-brother of Jesus? Jude would admonish the church to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. In fact, Jude opens before this, he says, you know, I wanted to write to you about our common faith. I wanted to encourage you in some things. But he said, I found it necessary to tell you to start fighting. Why? Because false teachers have crept in and they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, he says. That is grace as a license to sin. Well, I'm saved by grace. I can live how I want. No, you can't. Grace is never a license to sin. Grace changes you from having the freedom to do what's right. Romans chapter 7. And by the faith that, that Jude says contend for, the faith, what he means is that body of teaching, the whole of the teaching that's been passed on to us by the blood of the apostles, by the blood of our Lord himself. Contend for this, church. Contend for this. Jude, verse 3 and 4. Let's move out now a little bit from the biblical authors to just a few centuries past. Athanasius, one of my favorite. And these are, by the way, cherry-picked. You can go at any point in church history and find people who made stands. These are some of the major well-known ones. Athanasius was a young deacon when the Arian controversy came to the church. Arian taught that Jesus was of similar substance to the Father, but less than. He, in fact, was a created substance, Arian taught, albeit of a much more glorious or noble type than we as humans. In effect, he denied the deity of Jesus and his eternality. What do you lose when you lose the deity of Jesus? You lose salvation. Jesus had to be both man and God. You lose salvation when you deny the deity of Christ. What happened? The Council of Nicaea, you've probably heard of that, was called together to deal with Arianism in 325 AD. The debate centered around, and I love this point, because many would call this nitpicking. The debate centered around one letter, the Greek letter iota, which is our I. It was not nit nitpicking, however. Homo usian, which means the same substance, or homo eusian, which means like substance. World of difference it makes, huh? What did the church conclude? After much debate, I want to point this out. When the council was called together, very similar to Jerusalem in Acts 15, both the opponents and those who stood for truth were there. They allowed the Arians to come and debate. And it took several weeks, maybe months, I think, at the end of the Nicene, Nicaea Council, here's what was written. The Nicene Creed, we all know it. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of His Father, of the substance of the Father. Now you know why they wrote that. Of the substance of the Father. And then they go on and make it clear. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance, homoousian, with the Father. But they added this addendum afterward. But those who say, this would be Arian, there was a time when he was not. Or there was, he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing. Or he is of another substance or essence. Or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable. They are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Strong words, right? What's interesting in history is Arianism actually gained greater ground after this was made. And it became more and more popular, so that Arianism dominated the church after this creed. Isn't that interesting? But one man, Athanasius, dared to stand against it. I love this man. Athanasius became, after the Nicaea Council, Arian's chief opponent. 
As a result, he would be exiled no less than five times in his life. In fact, he would die without ever seeing the repentance of the church. Athanasius was not alone in his stand, but he was nearly alone in his fight for orthodoxy. He suffered the greatest, no doubt. There's a saying that came about, Athanasius contra mundum, which translated means Athanasius against the world. This was his epitaph. And it came about when he was asked by someone if he understood that the world was against you, Athanasius. Why are you fighting so vigorously for this doctrine? The world is against you. And he responded, Athanasius contra mundum. Then I am against the world. He refused to back down. And eventually the cause was won. And it was through his efforts that his disciples saved the church from plunging into darkness. And losing that treasure that's been delivered to us, as Jude said. Fascinating man to study in church history. You and I are a result of Athanasius, thankfully. He nearly alone saved the church in that period. What about Luther? You all know who Luther was. He was born in Germany in 1483. He earned his doctorate in theology in 1512 before ever being a Christian. In fact, one of his elderly disciples who came before him said, I earned my doctorate in theology and I didn't even have a copy of the scriptures. That's how bad of a state the church was in. How can you understand theology and not even have a Bible? They would hand them out. Philip Schaeff, who's one of the greatest church historians ever, wrote in his work, The History of the Christian Church. I want to summarize this for you because perhaps we've never really studied the Reformation. We know things about it. Here's what Schaeff summarized that period as. He said, The papacy had been secularized and changed into a selfish tyranny whose yoke became more and more unbearable. The priesthood had become a mockery to the laity and to the people with the writings of contemporary scholars, preachers, and satirists being full of complaints and exposures of their ignorance, of their vulgarity, and of the immorality that existed amongst those who led. The office of bishop, for instance, had been monopolized by the young sons of princes and nobles without regard to their qualifications as political appointments, not godliness, that determined. Discipline was nearly ruined. Whole monastic establishments and orders had become nurseries of ignorance and superstition, idleness and dissipation, and were the objects of contempt and ridicule. Theology had become a maze of subtleties. The priest's chief duty was to perform, by his magic words, the miracle of transubstantiation, that is, the, the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ through some magic statement. Preaching God's word was neglected and had reference mostly to indulgences, alms, pilgrimages, processions, saint worship and image worship, superstitious rites and ceremonies obstructed the direct worship of God in the spirit, of, spirit and truth. Most importantly, piety, which should have proceeded from a living union of the soul with Christ and a consecration of our character, it was turned outward. And it was reduced simply to a round of mechanical performances. Legalism. That's what characterized the Reformation. Grumblings against this had started long before Luther. Luther became so distressed at it, though, at the selling of indulgences in particular, that he nailed what you guys know to be his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. October 31st. We're about to celebrate 501 years of the Reformation this coming October. But have any of you ever read any of the theses? How important that document is to the church. I'm going to read a few of them to you because I want you to know what he actually said in those 95 theses. Here's what he said in his opening statement. Out of love and zeal for truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following thesis will be publicly discussed in Wittenberg. I want you church to catch this. Why did Luther risk everything? Out of love and zeal for the truth. That's why he did it. And he did lose much. Here's what some of his theses said. Thesis 27, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. 
It's the indulgences he's talking about. You can buy your way out of purgatory. What does that do to repentance, by the way? I don't need to change my life. I'll just pay my way out. That's what he was fighting. Thesis 32. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Now, I'm sure that didn't go well. Thesis 36. Any truly repentant Christian has a right to full remission of penalty and guilt, even without indulgences. Are you not thankful he fought for that? What about those poor peasants who didn't have money to give? You can be forgiven. Thesis 53, he said this, They are enemies of Christ and the Pope who forbid altogether the preaching of the Word of God in some churches in order that indulgences may be preached in others. Thesis 54, injury is done to the Word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences than to the Word. One of the strongest, Thesis 79, he said this, to say that the cross emblazoned with the papal coat of arms and set up by the indulgence preachers is equal in worth to the cross of Christ is blasphemy. But he ended this way, a familiar passage we actually just studied last week. Here's how he ended his thesis. I think you'll appreciate this, having looked at it last week. Thesis 92 through 95. Away then with all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Peace, peace, and there is no peace. And he quotes Jeremiah 6.14. Blessed be all those prophets who say to the people of Christ, Cross, cross, and there is no cross. And what he means by that is this. That the cross is preached where indulgences had previously been preached. Where the people of God never heard the message of the cross. That's what he means by Thesis 93. 94. Christians should be exhorted to be diligent in following Christ their head. Through penalties, death, even hell. And he ends this way. 95. Thus, be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations. Isn't that what Paul said? To the churches last week. Acts 14.22. He's getting at the false security. Of buying your way into heaven. As opposed to having true faith. And repentance. Luther changed the world. Not only the religious climate. He changed the world. With those theses. That's our inheritance church. And it was out of the zeal and love for the truth. Ulrich Zwingli, maybe one you didn't hear of, he was more responsible for the Reformation in Switzerland, where John Calvin and some of his successors would come in Geneva. But Ulrich Zwingli was fighting the same battle in Switzerland while Luther's fighting in Germany. He was considered, as I said, the father of the Swiss Reformation, following Luther. He strongly opposed the sale of indulgences, the celibacy of the clergy, How many of you have been watching the news lately? Is the celibacy of the clergy still an issue today? Without a doubt, the the church in the name of Christ has been blasphemed by those popes and those priests molesting children over and over and over. And it's coming to light. came to light just in the last few weeks. It was an issue then. Many other legalistic and hypocritical doctrines of the Catholic Church at that time. In fact, Zwingli had composed a list of his own theses. To be debated publicly. You've seen the theme here? Luther did it public. The Jerusalem Conference is public. Zwingli did it publicly. Why? Because they want the truth known. Here's an excerpt from some of his theses. The sum of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, has made known to us the will of His Heavenly Father and redeemed us by His innocence from eternal death and reconciled us to God. That is directly opposed to the sale of indulgences. It's not... That you can buy your way out of hell. You are only bought by the blood of Christ. Thesis 3. Therefore Christ is the only way to salvation. To all who were, who are, and who shall be. Thesis 4. Whosoever seeks or shows another door. Errs. Yea, he is a murderer of souls. And a robber. Thesis 17. He said this. Christ is the one eternal high priest. What's that challenging? The priesthood of only the Pope as opposed to the priesthood of all believers. In fact, the priesthood of all believers is what sparked, by and large, the Reformation. I can come directly to God through Christ. We are all a kingdom of priests. Christ is the only 
one eternal high priest. Those who pretend to be high priests resist, yea, set aside the honor and dignity of Christ. Thesis 19, Christ is the only mediator between God and us. 34, the spiritual hierarchical power, so-called, has no foundation in the Holy Scriptures and the teaching of God. What's he challenging? The hierarchical setup of the Roman church. Things that would get him killed, by the way. Each one of these. He would go on, thesis 49, I know of no greater scandal than the prohibition of lawful marriage to priests while they are permitted for money to have concubines. Shame. 50. God alone forgives sins through Jesus Christ our Lord alone. That became one of the five solas of the Reformation. If you remember the solas. Grace alone. Christ alone. Faith alone. Through the word of God alone. And for the glory of God alone. God alone forgives sins through Jesus Christ alone. 66, he said this, all spiritual superiors, and who he's referring there is to the priests and the structure, hierarchical structure. What's he say they need to do? Should repent without delay and set up the cross of Christ alone or they will perish. And then he quotes John the Baptist, the axe is laid at the root. Bold. Because the Roman church was not only the church authority, it was the governing authority as well, secularly. And for him to say those words, he was putting his neck on the line. The axe is laid at the root. You're finished. Brave, brave, incredible men. How do we respond? Those are just three examples. Luther, Zwingli, Athanasius. There's been myriads of others. We need to know history for it. How do we respond to false teachers? Because there's a difference here. I'm going to end with this. Second John, John the Apostle wrote this, verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, I should have not had that little colon in there, sorry, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in the wicked works. Now notice this pertains to false teachers themselves. And what's John say? Don't greet them. Why? Because in doing that, you're partaking with them. It maligns the truth. It's quite clear, in fact, from the scripture that the biblical authors, in dealing with false teachers themselves, held them on an extremely short leash. Extremely short leash. But what about those who've been heavily influenced by false teachers and teaching? How do we respond to them? Do we treat or engage them the same way? No, you don't. You don't. You must engage with them in dialogue and debate with them so as to persuade them if by chance, as the scripture says, that the Lord would grant them repentance as well. And he will. History's full of people, even false teachers, who've been confronted with the Scripture, and the Lord convicts, He enlightens them, and He pulls them out of their error. In fact, Luther was one of those. Here's a passage to consider. This is uh, 2 Timothy, Paul's parting words. This is out of chapter 4, verses 1 3, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, which means encourage. And I highlighted there, with complete patience. You see the difference in how Paul's... Paul never resists, never backed down from false teachers. But those who were being taught, he said, you teach with complete patience. You bear with them. You get in their lives and you confront those things lovingly, gently, but expose them with the word. Preach the word. Why? Bring them to a place of health. Bring them to a place of stability. It's what the Reformation was all about. We as a church must work to make this distinction clear. 
False teachers and those under their influence are different. That's why I highlighted that word in Acts chapter 15 verse 1. Those men who had snuck into the church and were teaching the people. Remember the strong word? They held a position of persuasion. Persuasive authority. And Paul didn't back down from them. But he's guarding the people. He's guarding the people. I took these excerpts. If you don't have a copy of our statement of faith. I want you after having done this study to understand... I labored over the opening paragraphs, and it was this study that I had in mind. So now I'm going to read these opening paragraphs to you from our statement of faith, so that you know the heart it's coming from. Let me read it to you. At Waypoint Christian Church, we welcome people from all backgrounds and at any spiritual level. We want to truly meet people where they are at, but not be content to leave them where they are at. We value times of questions, and we welcome all those who would sincerely inquire about any point of doctrine or belief. This is the only way you grow. If you don't open up gently, hey, you got questions you don't understand, so let's talk about it. In a non-combative, safe environment, let's check it out. Why do we believe what we believe? It's important we, we create that. With our entire heart, we believe... The common phrase, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity or love. Further, it says this, Having said this, we also believe firmly that true unity cannot be had apart from truth. That's the balance. True unity cannot be had apart from truth. Where we disagree, we can disagree in fellowship, but we're not truly unified in a perfect way yet. So what do we do? Let's continue to talk about it. Let's continue to engage in the scripture Seek answers. Salvation, for instance, cannot truly be identified or defined apart from a biblical definition and doctrine. The unity of faith is an issue at Waypoint that we must address both within, its, within our own body as well as with other sister churches. We will humbly and graciously resist the trend to unify at all costs apart from theological standards. This is true within our body and with other churches. However, rather than only taking a defensive posture, as is the habit of so many, we want to work at cooperation wherever and whenever cooperation is possible. This is, the only, this is often on a case-by-case situation. Scripture both admonishes the church to work toward unity, Ephesians 4, while at the same time understanding the reality and danger of false teachers and teaching, and to avoid such. We just studied that. We pray for grace, and I ask you to pray for us. We pray for grace to be a church that cares for and works with other churches. Not only our own, but also protects its flock from the dangers of false teaching and teachers. This balance is often not easy to find, but we want to work hard to find it. I'll end with this. This is one point, one application I want us to consider. When serious theological controversy came, councils were formed to tackle the problem. It was never done alone. Truth is never of one's own opinion. Scripture says that. Every aspect of the church was involved. We saw in in our own passage, it was the church that sent Paul and Barnabas. It was you who saw the importance of these issues and you said, Paul and Barnabas, go, learn, deal with this issue for us. The church was not separate. The apostles, apostates, those who did false teaching, preached false doctrine, elders, they all debated the issues. It highlights, however, it was not only the leaders involved. And this is the point I want to make with you. Let me ask you this. Why do denominations and churches tend to die theologically? What would you say? We see this happening in America today. Why do denominations and churches tend to die theologically? Well, one, they could have abandoned sound teaching or false uh, for false teaching, right? Jesus warned, for instance, of the impending judgment to the churches at Pergamum in chapter two of Revelation, and to Thyatira, because of the false teachings they held. It led to bad, wicked behavior. He contrasts that with the church at Ephesus who fought against the false apostles. He commended them for that. Or churches could die out because they have fallen in their zeal and love for Christ, which is what happened to Ephesus. When a church comes to a place, and here's here's the point I want you to hear. 
When a church comes to the place of complacency regarding a continued pursuit of truth in the Word of God, they will suffer a slow death. And what I'm saying, to be unambiguous, is when you as the people cease to seek this, we will die. Why do you see denominations dying, for instance? Because they can hang their hat on, this is what we believe. I don't have to pursue this anymore. It will happen to us, and it will happen to anybody. If you cease to be engaged with why we believe what we believe, you will be overrun with all kinds of issues. We see this happening in America. Denominations that fought so hard. For instance, John Knox. You've heard of John Knox, the great reformer. The Presbyterian movement came out of him. Over and over and over, these great... Wesley, the Methodist founder. Look how zealous Wesley was for the truth. And look at where they're at now. Baptists. Catholic. Episcopal. They cease to seek the truth. One of my favorite passages is Peter's last words in the last letter he wrote before he fades into history. This was what Peter said. Last words, 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Where are we to grow in? Grace and what? Knowledge. Church, I will tell you as clearly as I can, I want you to be educated. I am not content for you to simply sit in a chair and learn from me. I will endeavor and strive to teach you all I can, but you must pick up a Bible, pick up theological works, pick up whatever, and start pursuing God. If you don't, your spiritual life is done. I am so thankful in studying church history, the little bit I have, and as we're going to see next week, for those men and women who are not content to leave these issues to someone else, they engaged in it. And we are in the same battle. They haven't stopped. Satan will always wage war against the saints. And if we do not continue to grow in grace and knowledge, we will be defeated in that. And God will set us aside just like he did the churches at, in Revelation, and he'll raise up someone else. I don't want that for us. I want us to be zealous. There's an absolute necessity for the church, you, to be searching, to be testing, to be learning in order to maintain a lively and vigorous pursuit of the truth, to grow in both grace, the power to serve Christ, and in the knowledge of our Lord. Three, to understand for yourselves what the scriptures say and to gain those all-important traits of perseverance and confidence in truth, which can only be had from your diligent search. I can tell you all day what the scripture says. How do you know until you open your Bible and test it? You don't. You're taking my word for it. I want you to have confidence. And I want you to test what I say. That, by the way, church, when you do that, God will work mightily in us. He will work mightily in us. So that's a brief study on the history of the church. Next week, we'll actually tackle that issue of law and grace. Oh, it's good. <laughs> I love it. It was good. So be sure to come back next week for part two. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team back up. Father, you've been so good to us. You have, with such zeal, with such passion and energy and sacrifice, searched us out. As we sang last week, Father, about your, your radical, reckless love. Father, where you, you cast off all those inhibitions. You cast off restraint. You, you pursued us until you could pursue and give no more. You gave all in order to redeem us, Father. Give us, through your Spirit who indwells us, that same zeal, Lord. Convict us of complacency, Father. 
May we turn from that and those things that would not benefit us and give both our minds and our hearts and our bodies to, to the pursuit of the kingdom of God, as you said in Matthew 5. Father, we thank you for saving us, for loving us, for never giving up on us. Father, forgive us where we fail you. May we learn from that in turn, Lord, humbly. And you give us grace, Lord, I know you do. We don't want to take advantage of it. May our hearts, as we sing this song again, be lifted up in adoration and praise to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.